You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Okay, so John chapter 7, um, I'm going to read a little bit of the first part. Uh, Jesus goes to the festival, festival of tabernacles, and, and this is, of course, one of the three big Jewish festivals uh, where everybody would come to Jerusalem. And um, and now there's 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 a whole calendar of festivals in modern Judaism, but but in this time there were the the, the three main ones that everybody had to participate or were supposed to. So uh, we'll we'll read a little bit and then I'll just kind of walk us through the chapter. Uh, after this, Jesus went around uh, went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. You know, everything was on Jesus' time. He 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 wasn't subject to them. He wasn't subject to their schedule or what they had in mind, or for that matter, even what the devil has in mind. Jesus had a plan that he was going to follow, and he was determined to follow that plan. Um, it says, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, "Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do." No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe him. And, you know, this is important because uh, I don't think we realize sometimes that Jesus was persecuted from all sides, even from amongst his own family. Um, now, of course, uh, 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 some of us were raised believing that Jesus had no brothers, but uh, this clearly talks about him having brothers. Um and and the reason why some of us were raised with that teaching is because his mother Mary was supposedly to remain a virgin her whole life, the Virgin Mary. But she, we know that that um, she was the wife of Joseph, and they had kids. So you know, for whatever that's worth. But but um, even but he had problems with his brothers at first. I mean, later on, of course, his brother James would become a very important figure in the church and church leadership. But at this point, they're giving him a hard time. And, you know, uh, some of us, we've been through that. We, 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 we got persecuted from our families because we changed the tradition of our families or we did something different than what our families were used to. And it's, it's interesting. What I, what I have found is that a lot of times when we, we become disciples of Jesus as college students, of course, we have no, um, we have no history with religion. We have no, we have no credibility because we're still young and haven't accomplished anything. And, and consequently, our parents or family members aren't real happy about it and and don't believe us. And some would even say that, that it'll probably just be a phase. And for some, it was just a phase. But for many of us, it was not. I'm part of a generation of, of disciples of Jesus, that of Christians that became Christians in college. Uh, we got married. We got started having kids and families and and now we're much older and for myself if you've listened as you know I've shared I just recently had my 38th uh year anniversary as a Christian and for a lot of us it wasn't until until decades went by that our families actually respected our faith at first uh some of us were persecuted uh, when we first became Christians, particularly those of us from the older 
uh, denominations, the older traditions in the faith, uh, because it was such a striking change. Oftentimes with the older denominations, your culture, your family, and your church are all mixed in, wrapped into one. So to pull away from your church is an insult to the family. It's an insult to your culture and all that. Today's world is is much more fluid. Many more people are making changes. It's not as big a deal. But but 30, 40 years ago, for a lot of us old timers in the church, we went through a lot when we when we changed traditions. We when we became disciples of Jesus. Um, uh, so keep you know I keep on reading. This is therefore Jesus told them, "My time has not yet come for." My, for for you, any time will do. And, and of course, they're telling him, go to Jerusalem. You're not supposed to be hiding. Get out there. Let everybody see. And and you get you definitely get the feeling that they were testing Jesus. They were pushing him, saying, well, if you're such a big deal, then you shouldn't be here. You should be in Judea. You should be in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them, my time has not yet come. Now, the, I love this scripture because um, he says that he's not going. He says, I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. But then if you drop down a few lines in verse 10, it says, however, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, <laughs> not publicly, but in secret. And I love that because it, it it just shows you how, you know, Jesus is very strategic, very shrewd. No, he wasn't lying. He wasn't going to go, at least not when they were going. And he did have in mind to go at a later time in secret, you know. So, uh, so uh, uh, he goes on his own time and his own schedule. You got to love that. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem or down to Jerusalem because he's heading south. And um, and it says in verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So at the very beginning, it was very quiet. He's at the temple courts. He's at the temple. This is the, This is a huge feast. It's an eight-day celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles, and and um, about halfway through, about four days into it, he goes up and he starts teaching. And, and in verse sixteen, my teaching is not my own; it comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. And I love that statement because because you really don't know that this is truth and this is correct until you're living it. You can't stand on the outside of Christianity and have an accurate assessment, definitely not enough to judge it. And many people do. Many people judge Christianity, they judge Christians, they judge churches without ever really being part of it. And they'll think, well, I visited or I went to church or when I was a kid, I was part of this or that. And they take this tiny little experience with Christianity and cast that over the entire Christendom, which is totally not fair and and not accurate. Um, uh, that they really should have a better idea of what they're talking about, because the truth is, it isn't until you're really living out Jesus' teachings that you really understand Christianity. And which is to say that there's a lot of people that claim to be Christians that never really live this out, and so for them, Christianity is it's a tradition. It's it's what you do on certain holidays, and it's, you know, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim, I'm Christian. It's kind of the default setting. And they really have no idea what it means to be a Christian, because they've never lived out this life. And so what Jesus is saying is that that whoever does God's will 
will understand Christianity, will understand his teachings. It'll all make sense, but it won't make sense until you're actually doing it. It's not something you can study and understand in a book. Even the Bible, you have to practice it. You have to put it into practice. It says, whoever speaks on their own does does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? And of course, Jesus is talking to their thoughts. They're not saying this, but they're thinking it. And he's 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 addressing what their evil thoughts are, and he's challenging them, and he's pretty much exposing them. He says, yet not one of you keeps the law. I mean, these were people whose entire lives were built on their reputation as law keepers. So for him to say this is pretty striking. It's pretty challenging. And keep in mind, these are the leaders of Israel. These are the leaders of the Jews. And and these are them and the people that are there for the celebration, which would tend to be the more devout members of Judaism. So he's really challenging them. And um, they respond, they say in verse 20, you are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? And, and you know, you, so you can see the, the antagonism that's building up towards Jesus and the animosity. I'm going to go ahead and move forward. It goes back and forth really through um, through chapter 7. I'm going to re- jump to uh, verse 36. It says, what did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me? And where where I am, you cannot come. You know, Jesus said this. And, of course, they're all trying to figure out what is he talking about. Some thought maybe he's going up to Greece or maybe he's going to Europe or maybe he's moving to a different place. Of course, he's talking about heaven. And it says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, uh, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within him, within them. And, and it says, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Okay, so this this is, you know, a foreshadowing of what would happen in the book of Acts when they receive the Holy Spirit and they're able to go out and proclaim him and, and heal people and help people and preach the gospel. And he's saying, listen, if, if you... If you come to me, I'll fill you up, and you will be like like a spring of living water that will help others. And that's that is, I mean, that's what our role is as Christians. We're like a reservoir. One of my favorite quotes by Bernard of Clairvaux he says that that you, you know a Christian or a disciple of Jesus has to be like a reservoir that continue fills up, so that you can fill others up. And he says too many people. Are, are like a closed reservoir that gives until it runs out. And 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 that we would call in modern terms burnout, right? That you give so much, you're not filling yourself back up again. And we have to fill ourselves back up. We have to be continually connected or you will burn out. I mean, sometimes we've all seen people walk away from church and, and they just basically, you know, they, I've got no more to give or I don't want to sacrifice anymore or I'm tired of this or whatever. And oftentimes that sadly is the case. They were not walking with God. They were not filling up. And and of course you burn out. I mean, we've felt it. We've all felt it. If you've been around very long, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
where you give, 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 and you get tired and you get nothing more to give. And, and that's usually a, a, an alarm going off that you need some time with God. You need to, you need to just go just like Jesus, either get up early in the morning or maybe you need more than that. You need to go to the mountain of the Lord by yourself. You know, we've talked about that, the example that Jesus set, right? Um, so, so, you know, he says, anyone who's thirsty, come to him. That's what we need to do. You have to, of course, you have to know that you're thirsty. You know, when, when you're, when you're feeling like you got no more to give, when you're tired, when you're irritable, when you're, when you're, when instead of your sinful nature being kept at bay 20 feet away, all of a sudden it's right here, you know, and you're struggling with it. Those are all signs that you're thirsty. You need to drink from the living water. You need to, you need to fill back up. So we keep reading, you know, in the, in the, the next section, the unbelief of the Jewish leaders and, um, and uh, interesting enough, at the, at the very end, chapter in verse fifty, um, well, you're having all these debates and this discussion over him. And in verse fifty says Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, remember him? We we read about him right at the very beginning. Um, who's who was one of their own number? And talking about Sanhedrin, the ruling council asked, "Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing?" They replied, are you from Galilee too? You know, Nicodemus is defending Jesus, basically. And so immediately they accuse him of being pro-Jesus. Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. And of course, they're attacking Jesus because there's no there's no uh, record or there's no prophecy that the prophet would come out of Galilee. Of course, we know that Jesus didn't really come out of Galilee. He actually came out of Bethlehem. That's where he was born. Um, he later lived in Galilee. He lived in Nazareth, but that's not really where he's from. He's 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 in most in most traditional societies where you're from is where you're born. That's where you're from, and so Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's where he's from. Of course, him and, uh, and his his parents had to flee to Egypt, where they were refugees in Egypt. Um, and that's one of the reasons why God is so protective of refugees. His own son was a refugee. And then they came back and lived in Nazareth of Galilee, right? So, uh, chapter eight, and this is where I want to camp out a little bit. The rest of our time is in this first, uh, part of chapter eight, because I think it's an amazing, uh, story. And it says so much about Jesus, because keep in mind, all of this study and all of these classes are really to to help us to get to know Jesus better. I mean, the very first part, all the background stuff, a lot of that was to get to know the gospel of John, right? But even through that, we're getting to know Jesus because all those themes in the gospel of John are really to help us understand Jesus. Well, how he thinks, how he operates, what's his role, what does he do, right? So now one of the things, if you have a recently purchased Bible, one of the first things you're going to notice when you get chapter eight is there's a whole little explanation there that says that basically verses chapter seven, verse 53 through chapter eight, verse 11 are, are, are actually not in early manuscripts. You might wonder, well, what does that mean? And why is it that, that, that this is highlighted in my Bible? It actually has it italicized and separated. Okay, and you might wonder, well, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean it's not in the Bible? It shouldn't have been in the Bible? Or 
What does it mean? And I'll give you a, a very simple layman's explanation. Okay. There, it can get a lot more technical, but you know, the, the, the early at, at the, Right after Jesus died and the apostles went out preaching and teaching, and you read about this period of time in the book of Acts, of course, they are out, the apostles go out and they're preaching and teaching about Jesus. If they're quoting any scriptures, they're quoting the scriptures from the Old Testament that testify about Jesus, right? And And then they're telling people about Jesus and they're telling the stories that he told. And the sermons that he spoke. And, you know, so Matthew's out there telling the stories about what Jesus said, what he spoke, the things that happened to them on the journey. Mark, who's traveling with Peter, is out there and Peter's preaching and all all the apostles are doing this, right? And then as they, and then as, as they're out there preaching and teaching, this is being recorded into scrolls, um, and it's being written down, the stories, the things Jesus said, the things Jesus did, and the stories he told. Now, those scrolls get put together, and they become the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Peter, or as compiled by Mark, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke, the gospel of John. Now, Luke was a little different in that he came and he gathered all these recording, all these parchments, all these recordings of what Jesus said and did. Now, this is where the Holy Spirit worked. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm taking the time to explain this because I think sometimes when we know exactly what went into the Bible coming together, we start to doubt, well, then I thought it was from God. I thought God gave us the Bible. And we know that it's not like this book dropped down from heaven in a nice leather brown with gold trim, leather leather binding with gold trim. We know that it, this was formed out of something else. What that something else is, is these scrolls where what the apostles taught about Jesus was recorded. And it was all recorded and passed around the churches. And it wasn't recorded once, it was recorded many times. So you'd have a, you'd have a copy of Matthew and then three or four people would make that a copy of that scroll of Matthew. And they would pass that around, and then somebody would make a copy of the copy. And then you might say, well, how do we know we got the right one? How do we know it didn't get changed? Because, you know, many people, you've, you've, you may have participated in the tell a secret circle, where the first person tells, second person tells, third person. And by the time you get to the round of the round, the circle, it's totally changed. It's not at all what was said at the beginning. And people have used that a lot to... to to criticize the Bible and say, well, of course, I mean, if this can happen in in five minutes, imagine what would happen in 2000 years of things being told from one person or another to another. That's a nice, cute little illustration. However, it does not apply to this situation because it's written down. <laughs> it's not just said orally, it's written down. So I can check what the third person said. I can check what the sixth person said. I can check what the ninth person said. I can check what the 47th person said and compare what they wrote down. Okay, so our, our for the most part, first of all, you have to understand scribes write things down for a, this is their profession. They are professionals, right? They don't do this at home. <laughs> they, they do this in a scriptorium and they would make copies 
And it was their, their reputation was on the line that it had to be exactly the same. The copy had to be exactly the same as the original. And they would have it all broken down. They'd have how many, how many, how many letters on, on each line and, and you know, that it all matched and somebody would check it. I mean, it was very, it was a big deal that nothing got changed. Now, so, so, so 95%, you could be totally confident in a scribe's copy of a gospel or something. Um, now that doesn't mean that errors don't happen. They do happen once in a while. And, and sometimes somebody would, would forget a section or, or they would even write notes and, and there was one famous copy that said went to bathroom and that got copied into the gospel, into the copy of the gospel. And of course that gets caught right away because when you've got 49 copies and they don't have went to the bathroom and you look at went to the bathroom and you say, okay, obviously the scribe wrote himself a note and that, and the next scribe wrote it into the, into the copy. So, so they would get caught and cleaned up. And so truthfully, we have way more manuscripts, original parchments, scrolls, fragments of the of of the New Testament today than we did even fifty years ago or a hundred years ago. So our scriptures, and we know more about the language. So contrary to popular belief, we're actually getting more accurate and getting closer to what it, things that were originally said. Now, sometimes you run into a situation where there's a section in one of the manuscripts, but it's not in one of the other manuscripts. And you're like, well, geez, you know, it looks like when this one was written, they collected 11 scrolls. But when this one was written, they only collected 10 because this one, this one has one more than this, one more section or one more story than the other one does. And that very may well be the case, or perhaps the scribe just didn't write it down. So whenever there's a doubt, if there is a discrepancy, some manuscripts have this story, some do not. They put it in here. So you know that. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not from God. That doesn't mean that somebody made it up. Um, and, and personally, you know, I think the Holy Spirit's going to make sure that what's in here is what needs to be in here. It's a very rigorous system that was made to decide what should go in, what is Holy Spirit inspired, what is originally from the the apostles. Everything had to be tied to apostle. Everything had to be generally accepted by all the churches or it didn't make it in the Bible. And that's why you'll see, if you go to Barnes and Noble, you'll see the gospel according to Mary, the gospel according to James, and they're not in the Bible. Well, those there's 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 15 reasons those did not make it in the Bible. They got filtered out. And they should have gotten filtered out because they were not original scripture and they were not inspired by God. So a good system was made was to, to keep those things out of what is correctly the Bible. And, and even if there's even the slightest doubt, they put that in here so that you know that. When I read this story, it so rings true. I have no doubt about it. And it was in enough early manuscripts that it was put in the Bible. It's just that there was a, there were some that don't have it and some that do. Um, and some of the older ones don't have it. So uh, again, you have to keep in mind how it all came together. Now, does that mean the Holy Spirit wasn't involved? No, and absolutely not. It means 
it, it, it means that people were involved and they were, but the Holy Spirit oversaw it all. So, uh, I feel very confident in that. There's, there's several of them. Mark 16, the end of the Gospel of Mark, there's a section like that where, where people, uh, where some manuscripts didn't have it. The whole thing about, uh, uh, preach the, preach the gospel to all creation. And it could simply be that that fragment wasn't in one of the original ones, but it was original. It was, it was authentic. So it was added later because they knew it was authentic. So they put it in there. So, um, who's they, the apostles again, and their sphere, their, the people they influence like a Mark who's traveling with Peter. So I hope that answers the question. If you have questions, feel free to write in any other questions you have. There's a whole world. There's a, there's a great book. Uh, there's multiple books, but there's one that I had to read on how the Bible was put together. It goes into intense detail of how everything was put together. I'd be happy to share that book sometime. I am going to do a, a short class this weekend on on how to buy a Bible, and I'll give a little bit of background on it, and I'll have that book there just in case there's any other Bible nerds out there like me that want to really dig in and know all the the, the nitty-gritty of, of how it all came about. But um, I will say this, we can be totally confident. And the other thing is that nothing that was in those parts that are, were unsure whether they were original or not, nothing of salvation is in there. I mean, everything that is about who is Jesus and our salvation is indisputed or undisputed. I'm not sure how you'd say that. Um, it's it's absolutely solid. There's no questions about it. And it's only a couple of little sections. You know, you'll hear about the Apocrypha, which is a whole set of books that were added later um, by the Catholic Church. Um, the books have been around for a very long time, as long as the Old Testament, but they weren't considered uh wholly inspired until later and that's why the protestant churches don't use those and the catholic churches do and you'll always know the catholic bible because it has a little has a little cross on the on the back the little uh it's, it's kind of considered a german cross that always has that and that tells you that it has the apocrypha in it and those are the maccabees the ezra the, the i'll get into that another another time another another lesson but but that gives you a general idea why this is separate. In mine, it's I separated and I italicized. So if you have an old Bible, it won't do that. But the new ones do because they want you to know that there was a question about this. You know, that it wasn't in all the original manuscripts. So we're actually um, out of time, but we got through chapter 7 and I got to give you the whole background on this section. I think I'll just stop there and then the next class we'll jump on in because this is really good stuff here that we want to break down. We learn a lot about Jesus in chapter eight. So um, thank you for being with us. And, and, and I pray this just strengthens your faith and helps you understand better and better who Jesus is and helps you to focus your eyes on him. So God bless you. Be safe. And we'll see you at the next study. You've just listened to the Metro LA podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit metrolaregion.com 